Welcome to Fink or Swim Live on the Stunt Show. Coming to you live from Beverly Hills, California, and heard around the world on NahumSiegel.com and the NSN app. Stunt Show is heard every Thursday, 1 Eastern Time, 10 Pacific Time. That's important for people like me on the West Coast, keeping track of the Pacific Time. With uh, We have a, a cast of rotating hosts keeping you entertained. It's been a while since I've done a live show from California, the last time that I was live on the, the Nahum Siegel network for the stunt show was um, in studio, the Lower East Side, which is always a great treat when I get to see Avrami in person. This week, I am watching Avrami from afar, thanks to the magic of Skype, and Avrami is not watching me. So that's the best thing about having uh, Skype. You can choose who gets to see whom, and I am watching Avrami. He is not watching me, but he is watching the boards to make sure that everything goes smoothly. My name is Eliyahu Fink, and aside from hosting this radio show, I was the rabbi at the Shul on the Beach in Venice for about seven years. Um, my blog, thinkorswim.com, and my Facebook page are active destinations for conversations and ish- about issues facing our community and really anything else on my mind. Um, we like this to be as interactive as possible, so as always, you can contact me in real time by messaging me on Facebook, uh, commenting on the Facebook post where I announced the show for today, uh, commenting on the NSN app live stream page. Um, and I invite your thoughts, your comments, your questions on anything that we are discussing as the show goes along. So today we have, uh, I'm going to split the show into two parts. We're going to do a little bit of, uh, discussion at the beginning about one topic and then we're going to bring in our guest to discuss the second issue. Um, so I think that most people that have been kind of awake on the internet, I guess if you're not awake on the internet, it's possible that you wouldn't notice this, but there has been a big discussion. I mean, it's been a discussion for, for years already, but a big discussion that that was recently reinvigorated, um, by statements from the RCA, which is the Rinkle Council of America and the Moetis Kedolia Torah, which is the uh, leadership of the rabbinic leadership of the Aguda. And although both groups said different things, the effect has been the same on, of their, the effect of their words has been the same, um, in, in, in theory, because I, I don't see a real difference in how people are reacting to both of them. And I think they are different. But the statements re, re regarding something that, um, has become a much more fundamental issue than it was in years past. And that is the issue of female clergy. Uh, women who are who are of the status that they should be able to have some sort of recognition as rabbinic leadership, and it's a complicated issue for a lot of reasons. You know, m- most 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 simply, it's a huge social issue. And by social issue, I mean that forget religion for a second, forget religious law for a second. We need to think about um, what is motivating people in their opinions of whether a person who is um, whether a person who is a at least at a level where they could be a rabbinic figure, whether that person, if they are a woman, can receive ordination or recognition for that fact. So I always think that it's good to look at social first because I think that although we, we want to believe that our social positions come from religious places, a lot of times our religious positions come from social places. So what that means is people who generally feel that women should have the same opportunities as men and that uh, there should be something as a value, there is a value attached to something called gender equality, as it's called, 
or that there is a value attached to um, women having the same opportunities as men and that women have the same kind of um, biological and uh, makeup in order to be able to have the positions that were typically held by men, the people that hold that position are generally going to feel more compelled towards trying to figure out a way to give women that opportunity in Orthodox Judaism. I think that's obvious. And then if you go the other way around, um, if you look at people who believe that the values for what women should do are set by traditional values, they're set by what was done in years past, what is done by um, communities that are less progressive in this way and can be justifiably um, based on more sources in Torah and more sources in rabbinic literature because that's just how it was and that's how it should be because that's the way it's supposed to be. That's the way God wants it. So those people, because they have that kind of social perspective, are less likely to want um, and to attempt to find an opportunity for women in positions of leadership that were normally reserved for men because in those pe- in those people's minds, that is not a good result. That is not what is supposed to happen. If it happens in a society, what are we going to do? We can't control society. But if we can control our community, we should, and we should leave it in the most ideal way possible. So I think that's a social perspective that's important to, to remember when we start talking about the religious perspective. The religious perspective then comes in, and you have really a variety of views. And I hate to do this. I hate to talk about groups of people within categories because in every category there are so many exceptions. And in every category... You know, it's impossible to really explain or describe a group that you're not part of, even a group that you are part of, but especially a group that you're not part of accurately and fairly. Um, so I'll just say that there's like, you know, groups that represent people. I'm not assigning any specific people to those groups, but I know that these groups do represent people. So you have the Aguda type people and the Moetzes type people and their religious position. This is not a social position. Their religious position is that one who confers ordination on women is not considered orthodox. One who receives ordination as a woman is not orthodox. And that's the end of the discussion, right? And there's no, um, we don't really care what the reasons or motivations are for these people because it's not allowed and you're not orthodox if you do that. And if you, if you care about being orthodox, you can't do this. That's kind of the, um, the, the, the position that's kind of familiar to people because that's how it's always been really. But the RCA... Uh, which is a group that represents actually a group of rabbis, which um, represents a whole different group of Orthodox Jews. Um, and the RCA you know, rabbis and the communities that they, they represent are typically people that are less insular and more involved and engaged in the secular world. And one could say that therefore they're more influenced or more interested in having the kind of uh, society that is uh, reflected by secular society today where women are supposed to be treated the same as men. And the RCA's statement on this issue um, was that, you know, it's true that many women have the opportunity to study, to learn, to become Talmudot, Chachamot, to become Torah scholars, to become people that have a real contribution to offer in terms of what their Torah skills and Torah uh, achievements are. And they should share them with the public. And they should be speakers. And they should be uh, teachers. They should be leaders even. But they draw the line at somebody using the title that is rabbinic, either in in the name or rabbinic in the way that it is treated. So in other words, it's true that a woman can do all that stuff, but a woman should not be called rabbi or a rabbinic equivalent. And if that sounds like semantics, I think it is. But then there was a clarification from one of the rabbis from the RCA. And within the RCA, you have a wide spectrum of rabbis. In fact, this vote that they had on a resolution towards 
deciding whether to pass this resolution that would say that women rabbis um, are considered not part of our, our, our RCA. You can't be an RCA rabbi if you have a woman rabbi in your shul. You can't be an RCA rabbi if you give ordination to women. That was really what their um, resolution was about. They, they, they're so, they're so careful to say that at the end of it, that, that a woman can do anything else. But one rabbi who is from the, from the more right wing side of the equation. So within the RCA, you have a, a broad spectrum. You have a diverse group of people and rabbis that are in the RCA. So the, the RCA leadership that trends towards the more conservative side of religion. And when I say conservative, I don't mean big C, I mean small C. Um, that side believes that the statement is the ideal. And if there are people that are, you know, they feel that it's necessary to have a yoatzet halacha, like, for example, in many shuls today or in communities, you have women who will answer halacha shilos, halacha questions that are they, that they are experts in. And for many women, that's more comfortable to ask them a question. So in, the, in those in those places, it's like you have you have to you have to do it, but it's certainly not an ideal. Um, whereas there are other people within the RCA that believe that it is an ideal, and because it is an ideal, that is um, certainly something that we should encourage that women should have as many opportunities as possible up to the point where they become rabbinic figures. Okay. Then you have the third group, I would say, which is a group of people that is. Not just conferring the ordination. I think that's easy to, you know, easy to say that those people would like to give women ordination. But there are a lot of people that are orthodox, that are passionately orthodox, that are from. They care about Torah. They care about mitzvahs. They care about God. They care about doing what Hashem wants. Um, and yet, somehow, they reconcile this with, um, with trying to allow for women to have rabbinic ordination or something equivalent. So what happens in these types of things? And I think I can, I can rely on whoever's uh, been part of this discussion over the last few weeks or few years even to confirm this. The discussion inevitably turns away from the things like, well, why do women want this? And why don't men want women to do this? And why don't women want to do this? And why don't men, why do men want women to? The questions of what is motivating people is not really addressed at all. In fact, the assumptions are made about what motivates people. So, the assumptions on one side, let's say the assumptions of the ones giving ordination, they will say that the ones who do not give ordination, it's because they are misogynist, because they hate women, or because that they are so old-fashioned they can't see a different way. They will assign motivation to those people, and they don't even know the motivation. And the same thing applies on the other side as well. Those who do not allow women to get ordination will assume that the reason that the people that want to give ordination to women want to give ordination to women is because they are trying to undermine Orthodox Judaism or because they think that there's no such thing as halacha or there's no such thing as religious law or that there's no such thing as um, Jewish values and that we should follow secular progressive values instead of following the traditional Jewish values, they will assign motivation to them as well. I think that's a problem. And the reason that's a problem is because, first of all, it's it's horrible for a person's um, empathetic ability if they cannot try to understand the other side, if they just make assumptions about the other side, that is a, a, that's a bad thing to do. I think that's agreed upon in general. We always want to try to understand the motivations of other people that are doing things that we don't agree with because at least then we can understand them on their own terms. And maybe, maybe we can still be friends with them. Maybe we can still understand them in a way that gives us uh, a, a kind of connection to them. Even if it's not going to be something that we, we agree upon everything together, we can still work together in many other things. But when we start to assume and we start to assign blame, we start to assign reasons or motivations that are not necessarily correct. In those cases, I think that we undermine that ability 
to our of ourselves. We are actually cutting ourselves off from that conversation forever when we start assuming things about others. So therefore, I believe it's very important to discuss for at least a few minutes today what some of the motivations might be in an empathetic way. Understand them on their terms. Why do they do these things? Why do they hold these things? Why do they believe these things? As opposed to assuming why and usually assigning a reason that is negative or is um, that is insulting or critical in an unfair way. So that's where we're at. I'll start with the side of people that are trying to confer ordination. Okay, so people that want to give women ordination, people that want women to be rabbinic leaders and figures, the, the assumption should not be that it's because they're trying to undo Orthodox Judaism. The assumption should be that they're trying to improve Orthodox Judaism. And you may not see how it's an improvement to Orthodox Judaism if you have women who are rabbinic figures, but I'll give you an analogy, and maybe that will help you understand it. Okay, what would be better for society in the United States, right? The United States, what would be better for society? Would it be better for society if women did not become doctors and lawyers and judges, politicians and business people and entrepreneurs and uh, coding for technology and creative? Would it be better for society if men did everything? It shouldn't take you that long to answer. Of course, this society would not be better if men did everything. Right? There are certain things that every person can contribute to society. We can all do things for the world. We all have things to contribute. And anybody who knows more than five people, I mean, if you know people in the world, everybody you know, you know they have something special about them. They know that they can do something that's different. So it's not really about men and women. What it's about is, you know, if for the best for the best result in society... We want to have the best, fullest possible number of people that can contribute. The more people you have contributing, the more people that you have taking a part in doing something that's going to help, the better society is going to be, right? So if we didn't have women that were doctors, we wouldn't have possibly, you know, you know, uh, uh, vaccines for for certain. I think I'm blank. I'm drawing a blank. Uh, but forget vaccines for a second. It's a bad example because I was actually confused. I'm talking about. Um, uh, some 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 scientific discoveries that were made by like Marie Curie, like homogenization. Like there are things that are uh, pasteurization. There are things that were discovered by women. Right? I mean, so if we would have blocked off women from doing all these things, it would be bad for society. I think that's agreed upon. So let's just now apply that to what we have in Orthodox Judaism. So are rabbis just like you know? Is that like a job that people do and they? are doing a job, but they're not actually contributing to the society? Are they not helping people? Are they not helping our communities? Are they not helping to develop our culture, our religious lives? No, I think of course they are. So they have the loudest voice, and they have the most opportunity to do so because of their title and because of their positions of authority. And not rabbinic religious authority, not legal authority, just like authority. Like when you are in school, there's a principal. The principal has authority. It's not religious authority. Or like uh, a police officer stops you, it's not because they have a religious authority over you, but when we say rabbinic authority, I think people automatically assume we mean religious authority. I don't mean religious authority. I mean that they have authority because they're in a place, in a position where we have to respect what they say and we have to give them their due and we have to be uh, de- deferential. And we also, most importantly, believe that they have great contributions and good things to say and, and to do for us because of the authority that was given to them. So when you have when you have rabbis that are of rabbinic authority, and not I mean, again, not just legal authority, social authority, 
giving people a chance to kind of connect to them when you have people like that. So wouldn't it be better in a perfect world, let's say, to have as many people as possible contributing to the benefit of our Orthodox Jewish society that have the greatest possible influence and authority from the best of our community and not limiting that that group of people that can contribute in the greatest possible way to 50% of the population. That's how you can look at it and understand what, what the perspective here is. Okay. So from one hand, it's beneficial to all of us. Every one of us that is participating in the Orthodox Jewish community, we benefit when the people that are contributing to our society are doing so at the greatest capacity. When we have people that are great contributors to society and they don't do what they're supposed to do, that they waste their time or they do projects or things that are not helpful or contributory to society, that's, that's a tragedy not just for them but for all of us. So I think that it's fair for us to also want to have the greatest contributions possible from our entire community of great and talented people, men and women. That's from the society standpoint. From the personal standpoint, from their person standpoint, okay, we have to think about what it's like to grow up as a very non-insular, committed Orthodox Jewish young woman. She says to her father, you know what, I want to be the president of the United States. He will encourage her. He will say, yes, you can do that. She says, I want to be a Supreme Court justice. He can encourage her. He can say, yes, you should do that. She wants to be the head surgeon at the biggest hospital in the biggest cities. He will encourage her and say, yes, you can do that. If she wants to be even, she wants to be the, the, the top educator in the public school system in her city, he will encourage her. In other words, a woman in our society is encouraged to do anything and everything that is available to them. Everything is available to them. So if that's the case, what happens when this same young girl says to her father, you know, I really love what my rabbis teach me, and I love the way that they live their lives. I love what they do. I love how they are able to influence society and help people and to mold them and to make them into great people. And I feel like that's my calling. I think that's what God wants for me. And he says, sorry, you can't do that. Oh, you could be a teacher. You could speak once in a while, but no, you can't have a congregation and you can't have authority in a congregation as a secondary or third person. You can only be like an independent thought, thought leader, but not as a person who has a community and authority. I mean, it's true that we could always say to a person, sorry, that's just the way it is. But when we're telling people that they can do, when, when, they, when they have this kind of comparison between what they can do in everything except for one area, it's very disheartening. I know of a woman. Um, she was raised secular, not orthodox, and she lived in the five towns, Woodmere. And, you know, she said she always used to see these girls walking from school and they were wearing their skirts and they dressed so modestly and they had such a like shine and a, and a beauty to them that she was always in, in, really inspired. She's like, I want to do that one day. And she was a young girl. And then she went on, went to college and then she went after college. She went to like do cura program and she was getting very into Orthodox Judaism and she was Orthodox. She was from for a while. And then, you know, she said to somebody, well, I love teaching. And I love doing what you're doing. She said to one of her rabbis, I want to do that. How do I do that? Where, where's, what's next? He's like, there is no next. You're done. You cannot do this. You can only do up to what you are now. You can be a teacher. You can be a, and she's like, fine. I mean, I don't think I can handle that. And it took a little while, but eventually she left Orthodox Judaism and she is a rabbi and she's a very good rabbi. And it would be, it's a shame that Orthodox Judaism does not have her brilliance and creativity contributing to our society. 
So I'm not saying we should change halacha or change law because of this. I'm saying you have to understand the perspective of people who are, are yearning for this. It's not just that they want to harm Orthodox Judaism. And it's not that they want to harm it at all. They want to help. But this is how they see helping. Let's turn to the other side. When people say they don't want right women to be rabbis, I think there's a lot of assumptions there as well. People think these people are trying to keep women down. These people have the power. They don't want to give it to anybody else. I know many rabbis, very Haredi rabbis, very Moetzes type of rabbis, and none of them want power. None of them want to be in the positions that they're in to the exclusion of anybody else. They're not like that. They're just very honest, good, well-meaning, well-intentioned people. So when we see things that we find to be upsetting to us, that they think we think that they're mistaken about things, or that they have an old view of things, we need to understand them on their terms. On their terms, what is what is their understanding of the situation? What is it that they think that is driving their motivation here? And the answer to that question is that they have a specific view of Jewish law. They believe with full hearts that the way that they practice Jewish law is the way that you have to practice Jewish law. And you could demonstrate to them as much as you want to try that you can do it any other possible way. You can try that. But this is something that they are very committed to. This is what they believe. They believe that the Torah that we have today, the practicing version of Torah we have today, is the best possible version of Torah Judaism that exists. And anything lower than that, anything less than that, anything different than that, even more than that sometimes, is an aberration and it's wrong. And therefore they say, our hands are tied. I'm sorry, our hands are tied. Where I think both camps are making a mistake in terms of how they frame this issue is they're very focused on the motivations of others and also the halachic distinctions and things that you can do in Jewish law that would be able to justify their positions. So you have people from the Moetzes side, the RCA side, using Jewish law as their answer. And you say, well, I know you want that, but the Jewish law says you can't do that. And the other side says, well, I know you're saying we can't do that, but we think we can, and we have a justification for Jewish law, and we're going to do it because it's okay. What needs to happen is a discussion about what is motivating the people on both sides. So if you understand that the people that want this, the people that want women to have ordination, to have authority, are coming from the right place, are coming from a good place, then we can try and figure out what we can do within halachic confines, according to the ones who are more to the right side of this issue, right meaning the more conservative side of this issue, the Moetza side, the RCA side. They should not be saying that it's, not allowed and sorry, they should be saying, I'm sorry, we cannot do what you're asking specifically in halacha. We think it's not okay in halacha. But we'll do everything we can to try and give you what you need to make you comfortable and not to tell you that you should want something else because that's what happens. You shouldn't want that. That's wrong. You shouldn't want that. And that's a very invalidating way to speak to somebody. You're saying what you want is not appropriate, is not correct. And therefore, I don't have to listen to you. But what they need to do is to say, we hear what you're saying. What can we do within what we are allowed to do according to our interpretation of halacha? That would help you. And if the answer is the only thing we're going to accept is to be rabbis, 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 then we say, you know what? Maybe we don't need to have this title. Maybe we have title of people who are dying, who are, who are judges. We have a title of people who have 
certain things that many, many, there are some things in halacha that women cannot do under any circumstances. Maybe we have to figure out a way to like adjust things so that we can give them this opportunity. Maybe. I'm not saying that that's the answer, but I'm saying at least we have to have that discussion because at this point the discussion stops, um, by asserting Jewish law. And it's actually a great segue to bring in our guest. Um, our guest today is a good friend of mine, Ilad Nohara from, uh, the originally well-known as the blogger from Pop Chassid and more recently well-known as the uh, one of the creative minds behind the uh, Hevria blogging community, which has um, really transformed in many ways a lot of the discussion online about Jewish issues. And I think that a lot of what we used to talk about was, is it allowed, is it not allowed, in very un-nuanced, un-empathetic ways. We talked about issues. We talked about is it okay? Is it not okay? What can we use to justify? What can we use to, to demean or to ban? All those things were the discussion. Is it good to ban? Is it not good to ban? But now I find the discussion is much more about people and, and the things that they're feeling and the things that they're thinking. And we're not really here to discuss whether your feelings are valid or not valid. I just want to hear what you are feeling. I want to hear what you're thinking and what you're, uh, what you believe. And those types of questions are much more interesting, first of all, but also they have a lot more benefit to us. It's, it, it actually, it creates discussion. It creates empathy. It creates community. And uh, Hevria has created a community. So I want to thank Elad for joining us and thank him for all his contributions to the Jewish community. Um, and say hello. Hi, Elad. How are you? Hello. Um, I'm doing great and I'm excited to, uh, to speak with you. So it's just us two here. I mean, Rami's listening, but I don't know if anybody else is, but we can talk, <laughs> we can talk openly. Um, so it's, I just want to say that I've, um, you know, I think we kind of had a parallel experience on the internet over the last 10 years, let's say. Um, and I say parallel because they, they happened side by side, but not really together. Um, and it, sometimes it was contentious even. And I'm not, I'm not embarrassed to say that there were times that I was, um, that I was, I felt that the, like, like this, uh, Elad guy, this Pop Chasa guy, it's like a nemesis for me. Like I felt such a, such a an anxiety about things that you were saying that I, I almost like felt like I, I can't even look at this. It was like really hard for me. And I, I probably failed all those trials that I was given. And as I think, as I've grown through my experience online, and I think as you've grown through your experience online, we find ourselves kind of in the same place right now. And it's, it's kind of interesting. We've talked about this in private a little bit, but at this point I feel that all that stuff from, you know, five, six, seven, eight years ago, it's like, I don't even know what that was anymore. What's important is what's happening now. And what you've done with Avria is kind of what I'm trying to do in some other ways. And I think it's a really beautiful thing, but I don't know if everybody here that's listening knows about Havria. How do you describe Havria when people ask you to describe what Havria is? <laughs> Man, you asked me the toughest question first. Um, but first of all, I just want to address what you said, I think you're right. Um, it doesn't matter what happened in the past as much and what matters is what's happening now, but I think um, I think that the way that it, it all happened was really kind of beautiful and I'm really uh, grateful, you know, to see it because I think it, it's really shown me how much of the Jewish experience um, and the creative Jewish experience especially um, is, is a process and an evolution. And I think that we're seeing... I think some communities online are being torn apart over time, and some of them are coming together over time and uniting over time. And I think, um, I think that just like our example is like one example of how the Jewish community, I think, is evolving in a positive way um, through the internet. 
Um, yeah, who would have okay. thought, so right? Being, didn't they ban the internet a few times? Didn't they, didn't, I'm sorry? Didn't they ban the internet a few times? Yeah, I guess, I mean, you know, I never, I was never a big fan of they, you know? <laughs> so, I'm not, I'm not into they. So, that's why I'm, I, I'm into us, you know, and I'm glad that we're, we're connecting, glad we're doing what we're doing. And I think, um, so in terms of what, what is Hebria, um, to answer your question, finally, um, I think Hebria, um, it's interesting because it started officially as like a place for creative Jews to come together. Um, what do you mean? And, what do you mean by creative? I mean, like I I know what that means, right. but what do you mean by that? Um. So well, that, that's that's what's interesting actually. Is that originally I was thinking of it as artistic in the sense of people who um you know they're not so much into politics and they're into you know um basically like kind of. Um, combining, you know, the, like being, being, uh, like, uh, yeah, so at first I was thinking of it very simplistically, like creating art. Um, and so people that were, I look at blogging as an art and I look at it, or it can be an art. And, um, and poetry, obviously we have a lot of poets on our website. We have, uh, fiction writers and, but in general we tend to have essays and that sort of thing. Um, and I was really like feeling like we were feeling like we needed to fill a hole online where most of, the Jewish web was, was not so creative. Um, and there wasn't a home for people to truly be creative. What I realized, um, as time went on was that this definition of what is creativity and what is a creative Jew, um, was different than what I had originally, uh, realized. Um, so this is, uh, a slightly long way to answer your question, but, um, I had like a revelation when I read this article about atheism and how it became popular or the atheist movement, to be exact, the new atheist movement. Um, they were talking about how there was this community of people, or a, to be more uh, specific, a lack of community among atheists before the Internet came around because they were a bunch of people who were, like, uh, living in places where physically they were living in places that would be maybe um, dangerous even for them to share their opinions too strongly. Um, then they found, then the internet was created and they were able to connect with each other. The guy who's alone in the South or some, some small town in, in the South could now connect with some guy in New York and, and they could start to, to build bonds. And then the, this is really how the atheism happened. This is why now it's, it's such a big deal and, and so it has such an impact on, on the, on really all of America, I would say. It's had a huge impact. Um, so, that's what I realized Hevria is, in a sense, obviously not the atheist part, but the, in, what I call, uh, invisible community, um, that's becoming visible, which is Jews who do not, um, and, and this is something that we've discussed, is that Jews who do not, um, who may define themselves by a, a box, but who really don't fit into a box because they, um, look at Judaism from the inside out. They, they look at Judaism First, as uh, you know, from who they are internally, and from their neshama, like they define their their Judaism by their neshama, not by their box that they put themselves in. And so, um, so that's a really long-winded way of, of saying what Hevria is, which is essentially a bunch of Jews that didn't have a home. And now we're starting to try to build a home for them. Um, and it's it's hard to put exact words on it because I don't think that the home is built yet. Um, so um, I hope I hope I answered your question. But, yeah, I think uh, it's great. And I think that 
um, what you're actually saying is, you know, it, it kind of, it's kind of funny that you use the example of atheists because I think that if I was using, I was going to tell the same story. I would use the example of the, the first Jewish bloggers, the Orthodox Jewish bloggers, where like they had mm. some, some of them were skeptics or they were just out of the box thinkers and they felt like they had like no one to talk to and it was all alone. And then all of a sudden, like there's this internet and you have these blogs and people are writing things. And now it's all of a sudden, um, a place where you can talk. And the first internet community of Orthodox Jews and Jews that were interested in Orthodox Judaism and the kind of stuff that's going on in their, in our communities and the theology and the, the, the learning that was on those old blogs. And, you know, some of them mm-hmm. are still around, but th- the community has kind of moved. And now mm-hmm. uh, people are on social media, they're on Facebook, they're using, everybody has their own platform, um, but they still need a place where they can kind of come together. Right. And it's true that Hevria is a blog and it's on a, it's on a website, but I think that a lot of the people that are coming to it came to it through social media. So the social media aspect of it, the Facebook and the world of, you know, talking to people right. um, in in this different kind of medium um, it was very helpful to people that were, you know, Orthodox Jews that just needed somebody to talk to about their challenges, their struggles. And, um, the same thing happened. It also, it kind of exploded that world and they've kind of slowed their growth. And now it's time to kind of try something new. And that's where I think Hevria has a great place. Um, but there's other places as well where it's kind of still evolving, as you're saying, into something new. And I think that's why Avriya is such a great place, because it's not set in what it is. It's not saying, we are X, you can f- come and find your place in X. Avriya mm-hmm. is saying, um, we are uh, in a, a mobile community, we're moving around, we're all people that are um, interested in talking about things, and many things in many ways. But now mm-hmm. is your chance to kind of be part of the community, and when you contribute, you actually can kind of change the destiny of that community as well, because everybody who contributes becomes part of that community as opposed to somebody that's just jumping into a box. Yeah. That's really well said. I totally agree. That's awesome. And I think that's great. I think Hevria is, uh, is, is a brilliant thing. Right, right place, right time. You know, if you had done it five years earlier, it wouldn't be what it is today. And who knows what would happen if you had waited. So I, it's great that you put it in, into this, into this world at the right time. Hevria has had a lot of success with what you're saying, like this, uh, very, artistic side of Judaism, but it's not really artistic like just actual art. It's the people who think in artistic ways and anybody who's right. kind of not just interested in the same old things that they've always been taught, um, which is so important. And I, I love that Havria has taken upon itself like this challenge of what can we do that's even more than what we're doing now. And not just to expand the community, but to expand the offerings of the community. Not everybody likes to learn through reading. Not everybody likes to learn through writing. So what Havria is doing next is a bunch of projects and I would love you to tell us a little bit about, you know, you know, to pick two of them and then we'll talk about like, you know, how they came about and where, where they're coming from and, to, and where they're going. Sure. Um, so obviously the first one I should probably mention is Avria Academy since, um, this is, uh, this is your, this is that our connection through Avria, which I'm really excited about. Um, Avria Academy, uh, or Avria dot Academy, uh, is, it's an online education platform. Um, if anyone's ever, I think, you know, it's funny because most people that when I mention Udemy to them, they haven't heard of it. So, no one's heard of it. Um, what's that? I said no one's heard of it. Like Coursera maybe yeah. is a little more popular, but people don't right. think of online learning in the way that you're, that you're describing it. It's, you're actually educating people on that as well. Right. So that's, uh, that's yeah, that's exactly what I want to talk about, which is that um, when we think of Jewish learning online, we tend to think of a guy uh, standing, uh, sitting in front of a bunch of books and talking to us for an hour 
or um, or audio of that, <laughs> uh, or I mean that's essentially what it comes down to, and maybe some art, you know articles and these sorts of things, which are you know I, I don't mean to I'm not trying to to bash uh, anything like that, but I think um, my point really is that the Jewish community in general, um, and especially the from community, but the Jewish community in general um, has trouble. Um, I think sometimes uh, adapting to new things, or sometimes it, it at least takes a little time um, for for them to catch up. So my goal here with, with Hebrew Academy is to kind of catch the, the Jewish world up in terms of what's actually possible um, online through, through education. Um, and I essentially, uh, it's a very similar platform to some other ones that are really huge like you said people unfortunately don't know about um and it's essentially the jewish version of those websites um and and what that means is instead of having a guy speak to you for an hour um it can be a course where you're either doing it with the teacher over time through multiple mediums um video uh google hangouts um audio uh text um discussion you know, basically like, and it's kind of broken up into a bunch of pieces because that's how you would teach a class, usually. Um, and so it's kind of to take people to a deeper level when it comes to education and comes to, you know, giving over ideas. Um, so that's like the structural idea behind it. Then there's like the idealistic idea behind it, which is that every, you know, I've always been moved by the Rebbe's idea that everyone should teach Aleph, um, if they know Aleph, because that's, I think I know half of Aleph, so that's what I try to, give over usually and um meaning to say that like if you know something you should you should do your best to give it over and and i that's how Hevria was kind of built was to be a platform for everyone um that that has the power to, to speak you know that or is willing to be brave enough to say the things that other people might be afraid to say um or brave enough to to be vulnerable and these sorts of things so it's kind of it's, it's, it's every academy is an extension of that idea um, which is to empower people who are who are brave, who who have something to share that's actually, that's useful and helpful to others, um, and and give it over to them. So it's not always going to be um, you know a partial class, or maybe we won't ever have anything like that. Um, it's going to be more stuff like what you're teaching, for example, which is uh, it's called what was it Judaism, Y O U, Deism, which I love. Um, and I like, and I'm sure you can explain it better than me. Um, so I won't go into that, but I'll explain mine at least. Is a, bi- a bipolar and depression support group, um, and that's kind of an example of the Aleph that I'm talking about. Like this is something that I am steeped in. I'm not a therapist, but I'm steeped in this world because I'm bipolar, and I've gone through quite a bit um, to find the right care that I needed and to find the right. Uh, ways to to grow and to uh, to come out of a very dark and hard time in my life because of that, um, among other reasons. And um, you know, I feel like I have something to share with the world, which I have through my blog. But I want to do it on a deeper level and more personal level, which is why I'm doing that. And I'm really excited that we're having such a class in a Jewish sphere because I think usually we tend not to think that such a class would exist in a Jewish website. Um, so yeah, that's that's one thing. Um, and do you want me to go on to the next thing, or is there, did you want to talk a little bit more about Heavy Academy? Yeah, let's let's just talk about. It. You mentioned so many things that are so interesting that I think yeah. um, are worth you know at least just you know fleshing out for a bit. So one thing you said that I think is so important 
is that everybody has something to contribute. And I think that's um, a very, you know, bottom-up version of Judaism, which is less common in the Orthodox Jewish world. I know Hasidus in general kind of tries to emphasize that each person has this great contribution they can make. But yeah, on the other hand, they also have this like very, uh, very important relationship with the Rebbe who's always kind of like the one pulling you up. So there is a dichotomy, even in Hasidus. In, in, in non-Hasidus, I think that it's even, it's even worse in some ways. Worse meaning it, there's even less empowerment for the, for the average person. Um, you know, even in the yeshiva world. I mean, I happen to have gone through yeshiva system where uh, autonomy was almost emphasized in a good way. But I really love that we're trying to give as many people as possible a, an opportunity to say what they can say. And I was actually coming to this place from exactly what we were talking about just before you joined us, which was how there's this struggle in Orthodox Judaism today about women having rabbinic positions and the politics of all this and the religious law of all this. And I was just saying, let's talk, let's talk about the social issue here. Like, if you want to have the greatest number of contributors to society, if you want to have the most people doing things that are going to help society, then you want to have men and women contributing. And that is like a, a kind of view that takes like this perspective that each person, man, woman, adult, child, genius, average intelligence, creative, in the box, whatever. Everybody has things that they can contribute. And Havria has given not just those who are creative a way to like express it through writing, but I think Havria Academy is a place where you can now have um, many more opportunities for those who are just good people who have things to say there. Everybody's an expert on something and give them a chance to talk about it. So I want to ask you about, about a little more about every academy. Like, where do you see it going? Do you see it sticking into like a certain, I know it's not possible for you to say that because you're always looking to evolve, but do you, do you have aspirations or are you going to re- reach out to people from different types of perspectives? Do you also want to have like, um, a more traditional kind of like, uh, just Jewish learning class? Or is it always going to be like the quirky kind of out of the box ish kind of type of stuff? Yeah, I think I think that is a hard question to answer because um, I kind of look at Evria and its projects um, the way I, you know I've kind of always worked in startups. So um, it's funny because Evria, I guess you could call it a publication, but I tend to to view it as a startup. Um, so we have like every academy is at this point in the experimental stage. I, w- I would argue. Um, so what we're doing is I, I know like that the core of the idea is powerful. Um and um I think yeah, we're we're always gonna have the quirky classes. The qu- that is a good question in terms of having more straightfor- straightforward classes. I think that would really just depend on whether it becomes something that would someone someone would consider a standard platform or something where someone would want to teach uh these uh, these sorts of classes. To be honest, I <laughs> I think um that because it's under the Hevria brand as opposed to like its own thing, um, I think that people might not want to teach on Hevria if they have a more in-the-box perspective uh, on things. Right, um, that being said, you, you've also created that? this platform which doesn't exist anywhere else, where it's like you can talk right. about, you can teach in this way. So it's also a very powerful um, tool for teaching, for getting the, the the community of it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean that's that's the goal, that's the hope because you know that. People have been really wanting to tap more into our community. I mean, one of the the hard things about Hevria is that we tend to talk a lot about empowering other people and giving other people a voice and, and making it diverse. On the other hand, we tend to have very strict editorial guidelines in the sense of who can write for Hevria. Um, and we finally just opened up to guest posting, which has, has changed us. But I think um, the courses allow also for a deeper engagement because I think, um, you know, 
by by having a course, hopefully a person will feel like they're getting more attention and more more care from from you know the variety of people that are going to end up teaching there. Um, so it's kind of like I'm trying to find as hard as possible way ways in which we can keep the quality of what we're doing high and the voices um, strong, and while also doing everything I possibly can to empower our audience um, and and the people who also want to have a voice but for different reasons aren't allowed one on every at this point or at this juncture in, in an official capacity. Um, so, you know, um, so this is this is something I struggle with, and and I think Hebrew Academy is like one attempt to answer that question, actually. Right, and I agree. I think it's uh, it's it, you, what you're saying is it resonates with me. I, I've been involved with this, you know, since I guess uh, the start of your kind of journey towards finding people to to do this, and it it happened to be that when you called me, it actually was when I was trying to figure out how I was going to teach this exact thing. Like it actually mm-hmm. converged perfectly. I was looking for a way to do this, and what you what you proposed was like I don't remember if you remember that I told you this, but this is exactly what I wanted to do, and <laughs> I think that that just shows how there's you know a lot of people out there that are coming towards certain kinds of truths and realities and and kind of uh, approaches to things at the same time, and that kind of is like almost like a confirmation that you're on the right track. Do you feel that way when you yeah, talk we'll to others? Do they, do they say this is what we need now? Uh, yeah, there's been a lot of that. I mean, I I think. The difficulty now is, um, <laughs> to be honest, I mean, like, you know, it's, it's just you and me, so I'll just, I'll just say the big difficulty is money, because uh, it costs a lot of money to take a class on the Academy because it's a more involved process, um, which is why I think I'm excited for the self-taught classes, which are going to be coming up, um, because I think, you know, we're, we really have to find this right balance for the Jewish community in which, like, one, one other thing, what I got... One of the reasons I started Every Academy was that um, I spoke to a startup founder, uh, and I was trying to I was trying to tell him like I want to make Every I was trying to say should Every be a business or should Every be a nonprofit, and his main argument was essentially that if you if you are a business, and this is actually multiple people told me this, but he said it in a very powerful way. He said if Every is a business and people buy things from Every, as opposed to you go to a bunch of uh, one or two founders. Then you're proving that Hevria is giving value to other people. Not only that, when someone buys something, it's because uh, it, it it gives them value, right? It gives them more value. If, if you're putting a price tag on something, number one, the person is more invested. Number two, the person who's creating it is more invested. In it. So, um, so that that's like right. I would say right now that's the difficulty I'm also trying to address. You know, how do we keep this? How do we make this something like everyone says this is something we need? Now the question is how do we make it possible for for as many people as, as possible to, to actually access it? And um, that's right. I mean, I'm, I find it's like a know. it's it's like a struggle when you when, especially because you're talking about like the um, you know there's there's really two sides to this, and I see this from both sides. Like there's the consumer, and the consumer has to be aware of like how much they can afford to do this, and then the the, the, the producer, the content producer, the teacher, instructor is putting all this time into it. Uh, they need to be compensated for their time. So it's really like a balance. And I think that it, it has to be, um, it has to be like emphasized that there's value in like investing in things. The Orthodox Jewish community in general, especially kind of, uh, the Kirov world, everything is free or very, very subsidized. 
and it almost cheapens it. You know, it, there's there's something too like being sufficient, self-sufficient that you're like paying for your Jewish education in a certain way. It's 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 a good value that we should be talking about. And like I I also feel like this is a for me it's like a learning experience because I always have this like thing. I'm like I don't want to charge people. I don't want people to have right. to pay for things because I just want everything to be free. I want people. It's like it's available. It's free for I just talk right. What that, what does it cost? But the truth right. is like that's also cheapening my time's value as well. And yeah. I think if we all had like a, a, this ability to kind of understand and appreciate how much we can get out of things and how much the money is is like the vehicle that makes things work instead of just kind of like avoiding that, um, I think that would be helpful. But you're right, that is going to be the challenge. And I, I know that, you know, I'm hopeful that, that people will um, will register for the class. And I'm sure that everybody is like, oh, and register. And they see the price for like 150 bucks. I can't afford <laughs> that. But that's what like things cost. It's actually a, a very affordable class for the amount of time that uh, I'll be putting into it. And right. I know that that's like a barrier to entry, but I, I wish I was like, I wish that every person that like got to that website and they were like about to click X because like I can't afford it. I was like, I could like jump out of their computer screen and be like, wait, wait, but you can afford it. It's really, it's worth it. <laughs> just talk to them for yeah, a minute. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, it's interesting if you think about it, you know, what we spend our money on, you know, um, I spent 10 bucks on breakfast today, which was completely unnecessary. Um, I do that a lot, you know. But my point being that uh, we tend to uh, – it, it's interesting, yeah, because I think it's uh, – you know, there's there's markets, right? There, we tend to like to think that the market is, is this natural force. But then there's also um, perception of, of of value and perception of, of uh, you know, what what should I be paying for? What, what, you know, and, and the thing is, you know, it's interesting. It's, you can see this reflected in, in the way, for example um, – not to get all industry on, on, on your audience, but in the way that like the music industry has evolved, um, and the, especially, you know, the, or the entertainment industry essentially, um, has gone from being like extremely, um, you know, it's interesting because what happened was because the, the industry was so, um, against, uh, like providing content, um, for free at all. Um, what happened was that all their content became free. And then there was an expectation <laughs> that all media should be free. And then, um, you know, media companies started to fall apart. And now, only now, they started to really start to embrace, you know, like charging digitally um, as opposed to char- only like, you know, like they've, beca- they've, they've kind of had to come to this place of having free and, and uh, paid things. And, and I think like maybe the Jewish audience, is kind of, maybe almost the opposite where, you know, they expected everything, they've always expected everything to be for free because of, you know, um, and then not because they were pirating, like what was happening before, but because, but because, you know, that's kind of the expectation that was set up. So I don't know if I'm explaining myself well, but I think my point is that we've created a perception, and I agree that we've created a perception in which, um, paying for, for spirituality is, is, is like profane or something, or, um, or sacrilegious in a, in a sense, like, um, which I get, I understand that. And I, I've been giving like basically my whole online life. I've been giving away everything for free. And this oh, is my man. first Tell attempt really. It. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's something we've all gone through if, if we're bloggers. I mean, that's essentially what you do is you're giving yourself, I mean, there are benefits, there are side benefits. Like I think most jobs I've gotten and these sorts of things have come to my blog, but that's not, it's not the same thing, you know? And I think, um, I think there are people like you and me and others who are really trying to crack. How can we make this a sustainable thing? How can we start to like 
go beyond, you know, because it's funny because people also complain. They complain about the cost, for example, of things like this. But then, on the other hand, they complain that there's a few funders who control quite a lot and have quite a lot of influence um, in the Jewish world. And, you know, so there's this dual complaint. And obviously the only answer is if we start to approach things in a different sense, on a mon- in, on, like when it comes to money, you know, when it comes to how we spend our money or how, how we expect um, organizations to run. Um, right, right. So I don't know. I mean, I don't know how it's going to end up. You know, it might end up being that we're just going to have to become another nonprofit that gets subsidized and all these things. But I, I'm going to, f- like, basically what I tell people is I'm going to fight tooth and nail in, until that happens. I'm going to go down in the wreckage until, until we're broke before I, before I do that, because I want, I really deeply want us to be able to be a site that where I know for a fact that I'm giving people value. And the only way I can really know that is if people buy things from us. Right. Really the only way I can know it. Um, and it's I mean, also, the, as, the, as you're saying, it's socially transformative because we haven't done that. And if we do do that, we can, we right. can be successful. The truth is, uh, there has been one site that's done this successfully right now. I mean, I don't know their numbers. I don't know if they're making tons of money. But as far right. as I know, um, Alpha Beta, which Alpha is a nonprofit, yeah, Alpha, but they yeah. do have a lot of people that are subscribers. So there are people paying for that content. And you right. know, I think that it just depends on how good the content is. He has the advantage of having you know years of a, of a head start because now people know who he is and people are getting his content and they know, like, I want more. Uh, the problem with what we're starting is, like, it's totally new and nobody knows if it's going to be any good or not. So it's hard to ask people to buy in before they even have a chance to taste. So I think that's where we can, we can, we can believe that it can work because it's working other places, but we just have to kind of, um, you know, get through the, the, the growing pains because we're, we're gonna, we're gonna get, we're gonna get there eventually. Yeah. And that's actually why I really appreciate you jumping on board because I think, you know, that we have that vision of transforming, of uh, that, that transform, transformational, uh, change, you know, um, which, is much harder. It's much harder to do to do that than to, um, you know, to do what someone else is like. Like what we're doing at Hevria is like we're taking a model that people are familiar with, which is a blog, and and just changing what's within it in a sense, um, at least in the Jewish world. So, um, but this is like a kind of a, a whole new animal. So, and we're we're kind of trying to introduce like a whole new way of approaching how you pay for things. What kind of classes do you take? Like, I mean, this is like a completely different uh, thing. So I think it takes uh, some bravery to do that. You invested. I know for a fact how much time you've invested. And I know others, um, that we have some more classes coming out. And really the reason that they're taking longer to come out is because a lot of people, people are spending a lot of time on developing these classes. Um, so I really hope that they, like, like for their sake, I really hope that they're rewarded for their work because, um, you know, they're, they're doing something very brave. Um, which is to do something that there's no proof it'll work, and which is what Hevria was from the beginning, and that's what art is, and that's that's why I look everything as art. But I think, um, you know, I really hope and believe that that we'll get there. We'll figure it out. I think it's a matter of figuring out details as opposed to, um, as opposed to like a an existential question for Hevria Academy. You know? Right. I think you've said it well. Um, we're going to wrap it up in a moment. So I just wanted to just give a little plug for Hevery Academy. So I want everybody to look at Academy and to see which class they want to take. And if they don't see a class they want to take, send an email to Hevery Academy and say, I want a class that does X. I want a class that does that. And we'll see. Maybe maybe uh, a lot is, is he's got people waiting in the wings that will teach that class. Um, but we want people to at least you know know about this, be engaged in it, and it should be popular enough that people think the first place they go is like, I have some Jewish learning I want to do. 
I want to go to Hippie Academy and just browse. But if you don't want to browse, if you want to know what's there right now, um, I can tell you that if you want the best possible Jewish environment online to do what Elad is doing with a support group to, to deal with some mental health struggles that people have and their normal struggles that people have. And even if you're not going through, I don't know if you have to have the uh, diagnosis in order to be in the group. Do you have to be diagnosed a lot to be in your class? Not at all, no. This right, is, so it's uh, for anybody that, that wants to learn about yeah. the struggles of of, uh, of of dealing with bipolar. It's mm-hmm. going to be amazing. You know, you know, you know a lot. You've heard his work. You've heard what he's written. You know what he says. You know how he's expressed his struggles and talked about it in a very real way. He's in tune with it, in touch with it. He wants to share that with you. I'll tell you about my class for one second. What I'm doing is, I've, as a lot said earlier, it's called Judaism. Um, and the reason I call that is because I'm trying to develop a way of looking at Judaism through a lens of like subjectivity of what works for me. And I'm not talking about Jewish law. Jewish law is not subjective. Jewish law is what the law says you must do. That's the religion. But the flavor of what it looks like, a flavor of what it tastes like and the uh, vision of what it looks like is very subjective. And if you go to a Jewish community that's like you go to Crown Heights, it's going to look different than you go to Teaneck. Go to Teaneck, it's going to look like different than Williamsburg. Williamsburg is going to look different than Los Angeles. And that's an important thing to think about, that there's a lot of different ways of expressing Judaism, and it's not just in the external things, it's also in the meaning that we find. So what I've developed is a kind of plan and a, and a process by which we can all learn about various different approaches to how different things in Judaism mean things. And when you have like this linear approach, you look at all them, and you examine them, you can start to find the ones that resonate most with you, and you can develop your own. And that's what I think, uh, I've written about this, I wrote about this over a year ago already, I think that this is one of the main ways that we can work towards um, making Orthodox Judaism more, more, more um, compatible for more people, because by definition, subjectivity creates compatibility. So if you're interested in something like that, and I think everybody should be, uh, go to Heavyyard Academy and check out my class. You can register there, and I hope that you will join us. Alad, I want to thank you for joining us. I want to thank you thank- for doing what you've done over the last, you know, eight years or whatever online. Um, you know, being a very strong voice in a very important community and for, you know, consistently and constantly trying to innovate and create new things and better opportunities for people to learn, to grow, to think, to contribute and to be empowered to like own their Judaism, which is like the most important thing in my opinion. So thank you for all that. And thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. It was really a pleasure. Great. So I'm glad. Hopefully people learn a little bit more about what you do. And I always end uh, the show with a song that I think is really perfect for you as well. Like it's uh, it's one of my favorites. Uh, it's a good friend of mine, Ali Schwebel, wrote this song. And when he when he sings this song, when I hear this song, it makes me think of all the people out there that are doing things for others that they're, as he says, building a road instead of paving a road instead of building a wall. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to build a road instead of pave a wall. So we, we end the show today. I'll uh, see you guys next time on the uh, Thinkorswim Live show with the stunt show um, in a few weeks. Ellie Schwabel, don't stop giving love. Can you stand on your own with your feet on the floor? Shadows hide from who you